Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Well, today we are continuing on in our series called As It Is in Heaven. And really, um, we did a whole series on prayer and different types of prayer and the importance of prayer. And in that, we looked at Jesus' prayer that he told his disciples to pray every day. And in that prayer, there's this line that says, God, would your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? This is a prayer that, that Jesus wanted his followers to pray every single day. And so I think we, when we hear those words, we have to realize is there's so much packed into those simple phrases. In fact, what it reveals to us is that God's mission in the world is not primarily just to get people out of hell and into heaven, but his mission is actually to bring heaven to earth. And we don't want to just be people who are praying that God would take care of that, but we actually want to participate with him in fulfilling his mission. So the whole first week of this series, we just walked through the story of the Bible and saw how God wants to bring heaven to earth and how his plan has always been to do that through people. Like not just through individuals, but through a group of people. It was Adam and Eve. It was the nation of Israel. That's what God wanted. But last week we said the problem is, I think a lot of times we want to jump to bringing heaven to earth. And by the way, that's a phrase we use here. In fact, this Wednesday night, we're going to be packing meals for kids in Cherokee County who aren't eating during the summer. And and that's a simple way we want to bring heaven to earth. And we love talking about that. We love doing that. But sometimes we forget that we can't do something for somebody else that we haven't experienced in our own life. You can't lead people to a place you've never been, and we can't bring heaven to earth until we've experienced that change in our own life. And so last week, we looked at at what Jesus came to do for us, which was to set us free from sin. And if you missed last week, go back, watch on YouTube, get caught up, because we're picking up today right where we left off from last week. And really, the highlight that, that, that you missed, if you didn't catch it last Sunday, is that sin isn't just this thing that we, you know, offend God and incurs wrath and anger. Sin is this, the way the Bible talks about it, it pollutes the world. And it's this power that influences us. So we look around at the world and say, well, you know, things like bitterness, um, materialism, gluttony, all that stuff. That's just the way the world is. That's the way the world works. We use violence. We manipulate. We, that, that's the way things are. And so we're born into that world and we start to do those things because, well, that's just the way the world works. The reality is that was never God's intention for the world to work that way. And so all of us have become victims of sin and also perpetrators of sin. And even last week, we kind of ended the message with an opportunity to like say, yes, I'm going to commit my life to follow Jesus because I've got to do that before I can bring heaven to earth. He's got to free me from my sin so I can be the person that he's called me to be. And actually, as a side note, at the end of that message, when I asked people to respond, and just fill out a connect card and just say, yes, I'm committing my life for the first time to follow Jesus. And we got several cards back that were people committing their life to Jesus for the first time or people who had 
maybe walked away from Jesus and are coming back to recommit themselves to following him. And I just love being part of a church where people who are not yet committed or still exploring Jesus know that this is a safe space to do so. And I also am just so honored and privileged that, um, that you would trust us as a church to help guide you in your spiritual journey. But I think the thing that we have to be careful of, and I talked about this a little bit last week, is we have to be careful that we don't just boil down what Jesus did through his death and resurrection to like, okay, he set me free, so it's like me and Jesus, and we're on to do our own thing. And in fact, I think church leaders, oftentimes we do a disservice to people, and I've done this myself, so when we like overly use language like, um, you want to have a personal relationship with Jesus. In fact, that phrase never appears in the Bible, a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe that Jesus wants a personal relationship with us. The problem is that I think we overemphasize the personal aspect of the personal relationship with Jesus. So we think, okay, good. Jesus died and rose again to set me free from sin. And and so now I'm set free from sin and I'm going to go off and I'm going to live this abundant life. But remember, the reason sin is a problem is because God, with sin has polluted the world, he did not have a people who would live as if heaven had come to earth. He didn't have a people who would bring heaven to earth. So he set us free from sin so that we could be part of this community of people that's living, moving, and fulfilling God's mission in the world. Are we tracking so far? Yes, no, maybe. It's so important for us to understand this because I think even when we talk about that community, the word the New Testament uses is the word church. And so last week we talked about, you know, it's in my life as it is in heaven today. We're going to talk about in our church as it is in heaven. But I think we have to define terms carefully. Because when I say the word church, there's a lot of things that might pop into your mind. Like for some of you, you're thinking, okay, we, you got up this morning and said, I'm going to church. Like church is a building. It is a place. It is somewhere that I'm going to go. Maybe for some of you, church is like it's an experience of worship and teaching, and maybe there's kids and student stuff going on. Maybe for some of you, church, you think of rules and legalism and hierarchy and authority and abuse, and there are going to be so many things that come to mind when we hear that word church, but none of those are what the Bible means when the Bible uses that word. In fact, the New Testament was primarily written in Greek, and the Greek word for church is the word ekklesia, which really just two Greek words mashed together, ek meaning out, and kaleo meaning called. So so an ekklesia was the called out ones, and this was not a religious term. It was actually a political term. So, So oftentimes the government would call out people for a special purpose or a special task. So think like this is a committee appointed to do this. And the the authors of the Bible use this word to talk about God's people, that they are called out for a specific purpose. And because it's a people, then, it's not a building, it's not an organization, it's this community of people. In fact, if I were to define what church is, I'd say it's a community of Jesus followers who embody and expand heaven on earth. So it'd be a community of Jesus followers that want to embody heaven on earth as it relates to one another and expand heaven on earth as it relates to the rest of the world. 
And because it's a community of people, I think it's helpful for us to maybe put things in context of another community. Like in my family, we have family dinners. Uh, almost every night. And I love family dinners because if you have kids, you know, they, they don't always open up and share about what's going on. But if you put food in front of them, at least they're anchored to the table for a few minutes. And then conversation starts to flow. We'll pray together. It's just a great time. I look forward to it every day. But having a family dinner is not what makes us a family, right? Like, in fact, I go out to, you guys know I love Mexican food. I'll eat Mexican food with anybody. But just because we share a dinner table does not mean that we're family, And we might even invite other people over to have family dinner with us. Not even everybody at the table is family, but we're all eating dinner together. So a family dinner is something that a family does, but it doesn't define what a family is. In the same way, we can gather together like this around Jesus' table, around communion, but that isn't what makes us a church. That is something that we come together as a church family to do. But even just being here, sitting at the table together, doesn't make us all part of the same church family. So, so what makes us part of the church family? We're all committed to helping each other look more like Jesus. Like, like that's why it, it's never been about like me and Jesus and my personal relationship and I'm going to be with him. We actually all need one another if we're going to live out and experience the freedom from sin that Jesus died and rose again to secure for us. I talked about this a few weeks ago, but I decided to come back with some statistics. Um, In the U.S., there's going to be several hundred thousand people will be released from prison this year. You know, and then there's a whole other question. Why are that many people in the prison system to begin with? But that's a different sermon for a different time. But what studies show is that of these hundreds of thousands that are going to be released from prison, 68% will be rearrested within three years. Over 70% will be rearrested within five years, and over 80% of the people released from prison will be rearrested within 10 years. Now, I know there's a lot of social factors that go into it, and my point is not to critique the U.S. prison system. My point is to say this. The prison system doesn't teach people how to be free. It teaches them how to be prisoners, how to be criminals. And so when they are released and they go back to the same places around the same people doing the same things, they fall back into the same habits and patterns and behaviors. And so we experience the same thing when we've been enslaved to sin and then Jesus sets us free. If we just go about life like we did before, falling in the same habits, patterns, behavior, people, we're going to find ourselves putting the shackles of sin right back on. And so we actually need to be surrounded by other people, by a community who are going to challenge us, who are going to inspire us and encourage us and help us actually become more like Jesus. Does this make sense? Now, the word the Bible uses to describe this whole process is the word disciple. In fact, Jesus talked to his followers about discipleship in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. This is his final words to his disciples. So Jesus was uh, crucified. He was put in the tomb. He resurrected. He spent 40 days with his followers. He's about to ascend to the Father, give the Holy Spirit. And in his final instructions, it says, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority and heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. 
So these are Jesus' last words to his followers. So I'm guessing that they're probably pretty important. His final marching orders, he said, okay, I have all authority. I've conquered sin and death. I'm now reigning as king over my kingdom. So I want you to go and make disciples. Actually, if you read this in the Greek, the actual phrasing it reads is, as you go, make disciples. It's like as you go throughout your life, as you go to your work and in your neighborhood and in your community, as you go, make disciples. So it begs the question, what does it mean to make a disciple? Because when you think of discipleship, my guess is, I'm going out on a limb here, most of you are not going to go to work tomorrow and have a whole bunch of conversation about disciples. And discipleship, that's probably not like a common workplace term. I'm a pastor, and so that is a common term for me, but that's not in the, the everyday vernacular that we use. And so what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, the Greek word that's used here is the word mathetes, which could be translated a number of different ways. One way is student, and I don't love that because I think student, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, that's somebody sitting down and taking notes and learning, and that's not really what it is. In fact, when I hear the word discipleship even, it's like, are you being discipled? A lot of times what we mean is, why are you sitting, are you grabbing coffee with two or three other people and reading through the Bible and praying together? And, And that's good. That could be part of it. But it's actually so much more than that. In fact, perhaps the best English word for mathetes is actually the word apprentice. Because when you apprentice under somebody, let's say you're, you're studying to be a welder. Okay, I'm sure there's going to be some classroom time, like learning how to do things. But the majority of your time, you are spent with somebody else who already knows how to weld. And they're going to be showing you how to do things and teaching you how to do things and supervising you. And you're going to spend several years doing that until you get to the point where you're ready to go off and to be your own kind, have your own kind of career And then the goal after that is one day you're going to have an apprentice of your own to train up and to help them do that. And so really to make disciples is to have people apprentice under you and learning how to live the Jesus life. And I love too that Jesus didn't wait until his disciples had it figured out because remember like 40 days before they all abandoned Jesus in his moment of need. Like they didn't like have it nailed down. Jesus said, you finally got it. Now you're ready to go do it on your own. It's this idea that as we are helping other people apprentice, that's part of our apprenticeship under Jesus. As we make disciples, that's a part of our discipleship to Jesus. And so the question then is, how do we make disciples? And so like everything we talked about at this point, you made it through like the theory part. Like I want to get down to some actual like practical things. What does discipleship look like, especially in the context of a church community? So we just read this passage in Matthew that's oftentimes called the Great Commission, Jesus' final words. Well, there was another guy named Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. That's where we got the title from. But Luke wrote another book. He wrote the book of Acts. So Luke is part one. Acts is part two, and Luke records his version of Jesus' final words in Acts chapter one. That's where I want to dive in this morning. Acts chapter one, verse six. It says, so when they, meaning the disciples, had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? So in other words, they're Jewish people. They had the expectation that the Messiah was going to come and reestablish Israel as this world power, as, as God's kingdom made manifest on earth. And they said, Jesus, are you going to restore Israel now? Like, is Israel going to be put back into a place of prominence? 
And I love Jesus' response, verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, he's like, guys, that, that misses the point here. Don't, don't even worry about that. And I think that's a good word for a lot of people here today, because I think even though we're not asking, God, when are you going to reestablish Israel as a world power? I think there's so many people who are worried about what's going on politically, and when is this going to get fixed, and that going to get fixed, and get this person elected. And I wonder if Jesus would just pull us aside and say, stop it. That should not be your concern. Like we're doing something that's bigger and more important than who's sitting in a political office. Like here's what we're doing. We're trying to bring heaven to earth. Don't worry about that. But what should you worry about? He continues on in the next verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus said, don't, don't worry about all that, that, that political, geopolitical stuff. Here's what I want you to understand. You're about to receive power because the Holy Spirit is going to come on you. And when the Holy Spirit comes and gives you power, what is it the power to do? All right, this audience participation portion here. All right, they're empowered to be what? Witnesses. Witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And I've heard and probably preached sermons like Jerusalem's the town they're in, Judea and Samaria is the region, to the ends of the earth. And this is the three phases of, of gospel work. And I'm sure that there's some truth to that. The point Jesus was making is you're going to be my witnesses and this thing's going to be global. He probably didn't mean global because they didn't know it was a globe back then. But you get the point, right? Like it's going everywhere. In fact, fascinatingly enough, the way the book of Acts is structured, by the time you get to the end of Acts chapter 8, the gospel had gone to the ends of the earth, as far as the disciples knew. Like, it had gone everywhere. So the first eight chapters is showing how the gospel went from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts is like all the adventures that Paul took. And so... And this is another message for another time. If you have questions, you want me to tease this out, text in to our text line. I set aside time at the end of every message. But up until the late 1800s, like people and Christians just believed that the Great Commission had already been fulfilled. Like it's already gone worldwide. Like everything's taken care of. It's actually a relatively more recent phenomenon to have such an emphasis on evangelism and global missions and stuff like that. But the point being is that Jesus told his followers they would be empowered to be witnesses so that the Jesus movement would go worldwide. So what does it mean to be a witness? Now, I grew up in church, and so I've been asked the question on more than one occasion, did you witness to anybody today? Like, that's like a, not a normal phrase people say in life, right? Like, oh, did you witness to somebody? What, what did that mean? Usually that meant, did you tell someone that they're a sinner condemned to hell? Jesus died to take the penalty for that. And if they believe in him, then they'll have eternal life. Sometimes you throw in the question, if you died today, do you know, would you go to heaven or hell? Like, these are all, that's what a lot of times meant by witnessing. And certainly there is a verbal component to witness, in fact, in the very next chapter, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit does fall on the disciples. Peter gets up and preaches this message. And he preaches this message about how Jesus was crucified. He rose again. He's come to bring his kingdom, heaven to earth. By the way, little side note, never mentions hell in any of the gospel sermons in the book of Acts. It's not a hell avoidance strategy. It's a we're bringing heaven to earth kind of mission. That's the gospel message. And he preaches this message, and that's where I want to pick up Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 41. 
It says, so those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. I'm going to pause here for a moment. I'll be honest with you. There's some Sundays when I get off stage, and I'm like, man, I killed it. That was good, right? Like, it's okay. Sometimes give yourself a pat on the back. I have never preached a message where 3,000 people gave their lives to follow Jesus. I mean, that is some sermon right there. But then as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, as a pastor, it causes anxiety. Because I'm like, imagine if 3,000 people showed up here one Sunday. I'm like, where are we putting people? How are we discipling them? How, how are we doing any of this stuff? And here's a beautiful thing. You have 3,000 people added, and immediately there's like this discipleship strategy or process that this early Christian movement that the church implements. It says it in verse 42. So these 3,000 people, what'd they do? Well, they devoted themselves to these apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So there's four things they devoted themselves. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. The next verses just flesh out what, does it, what do those four things actually mean. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, so that's a big group worship, and broke bread from house to house, so meeting in people's houses. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And here's the key part here. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now that last part is key. Because a lot of us, when we hear witness, we think Peter preaching the gospel, that's what witnessing is. But notice, what did those first Christians do? They focused on building the kind of community that that kind of, the existence of that community was their witness in the world. And because they became the kind of community that God wants, God added people to their number every day. So, so being a witness is not just about word, it's about word and deed. And what I want to look at this morning is the four key components that created this kind of culture of discipleship that created heaven on earth, and that was so attractive that other people would be drawn to it. And by the way, the goal here is not church growth. In fact, I'm probably like the worst pastor for this because if people are like, I've been thinking about visiting your church, can we grab coffee? Yeah, and I'll like actively try to talk people out of coming to Bridgepoint because I'm like, if you can make it through that, then you'll probably find your home at Bridgepoint. But the, the reality is, it's not about, what I mean by not about growing church, it's not about packing people into a room. Because I know how to get a full, full house next week. If I just offer free beer, you know, I'm going to have a packed house. But that's not the kind of growth we're talking about. We're talking about spiritual growth, growing to look more like Jesus. And those four things they were committed to, I want to look at them, rephrase them into words that I think are maybe more common to us, is that they were a community of learning, they were a community of sharing, they were a community of being, and they were a community that was worshiping. These are the four things that they were committed to, and I just want to walk through each of these four things for just a few moments and talk about what I think this looks like for us, for our church, and our culture. So let's start by talking about being a learning community. I think this is so important that as Christians, we ought to always be learning and seeking and pursuing the truth. I think that's important because there are some people here and you grew up in a church context that told you following Jesus is just about faith. So check your brain at the door. I think that's dangerous for so many reasons. But number one is Jesus never scolded people for asking him questions. 
In fact, some of his most famous teaching came in response to genuine questions. And that's why we do questions every single week here. We want to be people who are pursuing truth. Because if we take Jesus serious and believe that he really is the way, the truth, and the life, then if we pursue truth, we will find Jesus. Like, I'm not worried about that. So we want to be learning. But here's the other uh, danger we have to be careful of. It's because for some of us, we're not very um, discerning in who we are learning from. Like, I think sometimes we'll listen to people just because they have a big Instagram following or just because they have a big church. And we view these signs of success as meaning what they're teaching is good. And that is not always the case. And by the way, I'm not trying to get up here and bash other pastors. I mean, please, like, discern even what I'm teaching. In fact, instead of telling you pastors that I, or leaders that I don't think are worth listening to, I actually want to point you in the right direction for some people that are going to give you some good, solid instruction on Scripture and what it looks like to follow Jesus. And by the way, I don't even think I should have to, but I'll give you the caveat. I don't always agree with everything that they teach. But they're all Orthodox Christians. They're all great resources. So I want to give you four. If we're going to be a learning church and we're going to be learning people, there's four resources. The first one is the Bible Project. Okay, this is by Tim Mackey and, and, and his group. And they do some amazing videos on every theme and every book of the Bible. In fact, they're all illustrated because they have done research. And when you see things illustrated out, your brain retains it more. And so they'll do overviews of the Bible. So pick like a small book of the Bible like James. You could read through James in in, in a week, just reading one chapter a day. And before you uh, read through it, watch their like five-minute overview on the book of James. It will just bring it to life. It is so good. And then you can actually do like classes taught by seminary professors, all available for free. Like you get seminary-level education for free. They have one going through the book of Exodus. The Bible Projects app actually is the Bible, but it walks you through how to read the Bible, and it teaches you how to look for themes and patterns. It will link over to different passages. To me, this is one of the greatest tools for learning and instruction in the Western church today, and I cannot recommend this resource to you highly enough. It is the Bible Project. You can Google it. It is a great, great resource. Now, I also want to give you the name of a woman named Caitlin Shess. She's actually a PhD candidate right now at Duke. She's super brilliant, smart thinker. If you follow her online, she has great things to say about church and ministry. But the reason I want to like kind of suggest that you check out some of her work, she wrote a book uh, several years ago called The Liturgy of Politics and actually how politics shapes and changes us and actually how we as thoughtful Christians should approach political engagement. And by the way, this is not, you know, churches are not supposed to talk about politics. And so the pastor will be like, I'm not telling you who to vote for, but here's the one issue you care about and vote for that person. You know, that, that's not what she's going to do. She's actually like really wrestling with this idea that the American political system is built on compromise. And as followers of Jesus, we don't want to compromise our faith. So how do we interact? How can we be pro-life when you have both abortion and death penalty and single moms and people living in poverty? How do we have an ethic and how do we approach political engagement knowing we have to balance a whole bunch of stuff? So great, great book. Very thoughtful. I would encourage you to check her out. Um, another uh, pastor and author is named Rich Velotis. He's the pastor at New Life Church in New York City. He's written some amazing books on spiritual formation. Um, but what I admire most about um, uh, Rich Velotis is that he is leading a multi-ethnic church 
in a very multicultural city, New York City. And so imagine all the stuff he's had to navigate through elections and COVID and everybody's got their opinion on this and that and just how he is cultivating a community that looks like heaven on earth. Absolutely phenomenal. I cannot recommend his stuff to you highly enough. And then the last one I want to give you is a guy named John Mark Comer. He's a former pastor and church planter who's gone on to start an organization called Practicing the Way. You can go to practicingtheway.org. There is no one better at helping people walk through spiritual formation right now than John Mark Comer. And the reason is because that dude is a machine. Like he reads everything about formation from neuroscientists to theologians and he compiles it all down and then he helps like just walk through building out practices like Sabbath, silence and solitude, prayer, fasting, all the stuff we talk about at Bridgepoint all the time. In fact, in the fall, every single life group is gonna pick one of the practices from practicing the way and walk through his stuff. I just think all of these people, all these resources are, are absolutely amazing. And please notice that they're not all just like old white men, right? Like there's a, a variety of, there's men, women, people of color. Like I think it is so important for us to not just learn from people who already look, act, think, and believe just like us. Like we need people from a variety of perspectives and backgrounds. And does that mean you're going to agree with everything they say? No, but that, that's fine. We can still learn from anybody. And these are all great places to start. So we want to be a learning community. The second thing we want to be, though, is we want to be a sharing community. It says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. The Greek word there is koinonia. Now, I grew up in, in, in the church where they, we had a fellowship hall. Anybody know what a fellowship hall is, right? And the fellowship hall is where you went to have cookies and Kool-Aid after Sunday night service, and nobody had fun, and we just stood around and stared at each other. Oh, like, is that what we're supposed to devote ourselves to? Please, no. But that's not at all what that, koinonia doesn't mean that kind of fellowship. Actually, koinonia is a fellowship that necessarily implies sharing of your personal resources, that means giving people the stuff that you have. That's the fellowship. That's why it's a community of sharing. Notice these Christians, what were they doing? They, they held everything in common. So, so your car is not your car. It's whoever needs a ride from church. Like, somebody has medical bills. You're willing to sell stuff to help them pay for their bills. This is like a radical kind of sharing. In fact, um, you know, I have three boys and they always run around the, the neighborhood with their friends. And, you know, the first time their friends came into the house and they say, Mr. Matt, can I please have a snack? So, yeah, you can have a snack. But that was a long time ago. And now it's I walk in the front door and walk straight into my pantry and eat whatever food they can find in there, which, to be honest, sometimes a little frustrating. Like I spend a thousand dollars on groceries and it's gone on day one. Right. Like, I mean, it's it's a lot. But I do love the fact that their friends feel so comfortable in their house that they act like their family. I love when I have friends come over and now they say this, when you come over, you're going to do this. But if you feel comfortable enough just to walk up to the refrigerator and get something out that you need without asking, that's how I know like we have that real kind of community. And the reality is that's the kind of community that our church needs to have. That whatever we have, it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to each other. In fact, the, I think the reason that we struggle with generosity and sharing is because we place a high value on personal property ownership. But did you know the Bible doesn't actually teach personal property ownership? The Bible teaches that God owns everything. That's why in the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to return land back to the people who originally owned it because God owned that land. So, so think about it this way. If I told you, you need to go out this week and spend $1,000 to bless somebody else. 
probably running through your mind, huh? do I have $1,000 I can bless somebody else with? Like, what would that even look like? And, and maybe, I don't know. And all of a sudden, we start to stress about it. But if I hand you $1,000 and say, I want you to take this $1,000 and go bless somebody else, I promise you will get more creative than you've ever been, looking for ways to bless people. Why is that? Because it's easier to bless people with somebody else's money. But the reality is, what if we approached it like all of it was God's money to begin with? That car wasn't your car. That house wasn't your car. It was all given to you by God so that you would bless somebody else. By the way, I think if that's the kind of community we build, that is so radical. That does get the attention of the community. That does get the attention of the world that we live in. We say, hey, everything I have belongs to you. The third thing we have to be is we have to be a community of being. And really what I mean is being together. Like notice they met every day in the temple and house to house. Right, not once a week, like every single day. They were living together. That was kind of their life. And by the way, I don't think you can have the sharing if you don't have the living. Because for those kids to feel comfortable enough to come in my house and walk in my pantry, that's not a statement. Their parents have done a fantastic job. They're all great kids. They're not being rude. They've just spent enough time to know that it's going to be okay. Like what I have belongs to you. And this is why I think it's so important. We're actually shifting the way our small groups at Bridgepoint work. So if you've been at Bridgepoint for a while, you know we, we operate on a semester life group, eight to 12 weeks. And here's the best part about that, because you can do anything for eight weeks. So you get in a group and you don't jive with anybody, it's only eight weeks. But, but the other, but the, so you stay at Bridgepoint for two years, you're gonna bounce around to enough groups, you're gonna get to know a lot of people. Here's the downside. You're gonna get to know a lot of people, but the relationships don't go very deep. Because it's easy to be in a group, and for eight to 12 weeks, you can hide anything. You can hide the marital struggles, the parenting issues, the financial challenges. You can do that for eight to 12 weeks. It's a lot harder to do that for eight to 12 months. I mean, in fact, think about everything you've been through over the last 12 months. All the struggles, the mountaintops and the valleys, the wins and the losses. See, the reality is when we commit to being together long term, that's when the real stuff comes out. That's when real discipleship happens because you have people walking with you through some of the darkest moments in your life and celebrating some of the greatest victories of your life. And so we'll always have some of the groups that are just like, hey, these are eight to 12 weeks and we're gonna have fun and then move on to the next one. But we're gonna be launching some groups that are gonna commit to being together for 12 to 18 months, maybe even longer, because it's great to know a lot of people, but we need a handful of people that we just have deep roots with and we can live life together. And then the last thing, we need to be a community that's worshiping. They devoted themselves to it, to the prayers, to the practice of praying prayers every day, of being a group that is worshiping together. And by the way, that instruction and that worship part, like those are the easy ones. We're like, we could do those on our own, right? Like I can listen to a teaching and I can listen to worship music, but the sharing and the being, you cannot do those alone. You need other people, which I think implies that the other ones are supposed to be done in community as well. Because I've had some great, powerful times of worship when it was just me and Jesus. But there is something different about being in a room of people. And as we sit and we praise and we worship, the Bible says he is enthroned on our praises. And we can experience the presence of God in ways when we gather together as a community to worship that we don't always experience on our own. Now, I don't really have time, but we're going to go for it. We're going to throw it open to Q&A. How do you find someone to disciple you? How do you find someone that is a good fit? Fantastic question. 
And if you find out the answer to this, please let me know. Because by the way, people are like, Matt, what do you do during the week, right? Like you teach for 30 minutes. Is that all you do? This is one of the questions that I constantly wrestle with is how do we help people find other people who will help disciple them? But the reality is, remember, discipleship isn't just, I'm going to get together for coffee and we're going to read through the Bible. Discipleship is like living life together. And the only way that you can find someone to disciple you is you have to put yourself in close proximity to other people. You're not going to find them just showing up on Sunday morning. I can promise you that. You're not going to find them by, you know, joining a life group and going two or three times. No, like you have to be around somebody enough to know, is this someone I want? And you guys know I hate Christian phrases, but is this someone I want to do life with? Is this someone that when I'm taking the kids to the pool, I want to pick up the phone and say, hey, we're having a pool day. Do you want to come over? Hey, we're going to the zoo. You want to go with us? Hey, we're going out to eat tonight. You want to be there with us? Because discipleship is apprenticeship. It's like coming together. And Jesus was with his disciples 24-7, 365 for three years. And by the way, I'm an introvert. And so all that sounds scary and terrifying to me. That would open my life up. But here's the reality. As much as I love my alone time, there have been people that I have like actually spent my life with. There was a time when I was in student ministry. This was a long time ago. And, and we would have these kids over to our house. We had Wednesday night service, and then they would all come over to our house, and we would watch Lost on DVDs. This was like before Netflix was really even a thing. And I remember there were nights, they would stay over so late that I was like, I have to go to work tomorrow. I'm going to bed. Will you just lock the door when you leave? And, and th- that sounds exhausting. Again, introvert here. But the reality is seeing those kids grow up and being able to be a part of their weddings, to see them start families, to see them lead ministries, and to see the, the, the time we spent with them helped shape and mold them into people who are now shaping and molding others. There's nothing more rewarding and exciting than to see I don't just have spiritual kids. I have spiritual grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids because I took the time to really spend my life with these other people people. And there is no greater mission we could give our lives to. Because when we create this kind of community that is learning and sharing and being and worshiping, number one, it's going to change us. But number two, it will change our church to be an outpost of heaven in a world that oftentimes feels like hell. And that's when the Lord begins to grow the church spiritually is when we commit to building that kind of culture here at Bridgepoint. And so we're going to continue in worship this morning like we do every week with the time of communion. So we have four communion stations throughout the room. We also have our prayer stations up front. There's a little piece of paper. You can write a prayer out to God. That's between you and God. We don't, you know, I'm not going to, you know, post that on Facebook or, or anything like that. And then there's also candles. You can always light a candle. Throughout church history, candles have represented prayers that we've offered up to God. But whatever this next few moments look like, here's the question I want you to just ask Jesus as you sit with him. Is which of those four areas needs to be a focus in your life right now? Like maybe this is a season where you know you haven't been learning and pursuing, so you're gonna take those resources and you're like, I wanna be a learning follower of Jesus. Maybe for you it's that sharing. And you know that like God has given you blessings and you just like held on tightly. And maybe you already can think of ways that you want to share, you want to bless, you want to provide for other people. Maybe it is that being together and maybe you're so guarded with your time 
And maybe it's about just letting the walls down a little bit. And maybe even just asking somebody to go out to eat this week. And do, don't do coffee, do dinner, right? Anybody can grab coffee, but you only go to dinner with your friends. Or maybe it's just, I need to commit to worshiping and being a part of a community that's gathering together once a week to worship. But whatever it is in this moment, I know Jesus will speak to you about one of those. And as you commit to that, I know he'll work and move in your life to make you more like him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we're so thankful. We're thankful that you set us free from the powers of sin and death, but that you didn't do it just so we would be on our own, but that we would be in community with one another. And I thank you for this church. I thank you for our heart to help people become more like you. I pray we would be a a community of people that's always learning, growing, pursuing you. I pray we would be the kind of community that has radical generosity, that we share in ways that get the attention of other people. I pray we're committed to being in community, that even as we worship in these next few moments, that you would meet us here in a powerful way. You would shape us and change us because Jesus, we just want to be more like you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, You can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.